Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for not only this advertising space, but also this episode that I'm really excited to bring you with uh, the legendary Daniel Winkler, incredible knife smith. But before we get down to business with Daniel Winkler, what we have to do is we have to recognize the sponsors that make this totally possible. Uh, so the two sponsors I want to bring attention to are Sig Sauer and Black Rifle Coffee. Now, Sig Sauer, their website is www.sigsauer.com. And the website of their training academy is www.sigsaueracademy.com. I don't even know where to begin when it comes to talking about Sig Sauer. I've had Sig pistols over the years for close to two decades now, and they just keep changing the face of the firearms world with really innovative technology, right? Removable fire control units, and even on their AR platform that they have as a preparatory system, the MPX, the MCX, with the ability to have no buffer tube. I mean, really stuff that no one else is really doing. SIG is one of the companies that everyone here at Fieldcraft, uh, we all love and we all carry. All of our instructors at Fieldcraft are using their uh, X Legion series of pistols. And if you haven't tried that one with the tungsten insert, I mean, that gun is, it operates like it's on rails, very flat shooting gun. And now when you start adding in all these different comps that they have for all their guns, totally amazing, amazing firearms. Um, the most recent firearm that I have from SIG that I'm working on building up and kind of tinkering with is their uh, tread pistol, which has a proprietary barrel nut. Here's a little insider tip. If you get a BCM wrench, you can actually take off that barrel nut pretty easily and you can put anything else on there that you like if for whatever reason the tread uh, forend doesn't work. But guys, what a great gun. I've put a lot of rounds down range with it already and it functions great. It's super reliable and it's a very compact package. If you're looking for a place to train, go to their academy. I've been to the SIG Academy close to two dozen times now and I'll tell you that everything from their basic foundational level courses all the way through their advanced long range to their armor classes. They're all taught by really solid guys and gals who are very humble. They will show you many ways, not the way. And I promise you, you're going to go there and you're going to love the the atmosphere, just the vibe that you get from all the students. Everyone there is common, like-minded folks. Um, and you're going to really enjoy the blend of students because they come from police world, military world, civilian world, you name it. So please check out Sig Sauer. That's SigSauer.com and the Sig Sauer Academy. Uh, definitely, definitely check them out if you're up in that area uh, of New England, which is in New Hampshire, right? Live free or die. The second company I want to recognize is Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, just before I jumped on this podcast, Oh, I just poured myself a cup of Silencer Smooth. That's their lightest blend that they have. Our good friend Jack Carr, he's also a friend of uh, Black Rifle Coffee, and he's a huge fan of Silencer Smooth. He's also a fan of Daniel Winkler. If you uh, have been paying attention to his logos, he's got the crossed R&D Hawks on there. But that little insider info, uh, again, you're going to find out that Jack Carr love silencer smooth. Now guys, if you go to blackriflecoffee.com and you do a little sh shopping around, you can use the coupon code fieldcraft, I'm sorry, craft15. That is craft15 to get 15% off your order and that'll entitle you to a discount, which in this recession, let's face it, every bit of uh, money you can save is definitely better in your pocket. So guys, whether you like uh, silencer smooth or uh, murdered out, which is their darkest coffee or somewhere in the middle, use our coupon code craft 15. 
It won't work on everything, like some of the special blends and I think some of the packages, and I know it doesn't work on the ready to drink stuff because those are cans and they're heavy to ship, but you'll get 15% off of your order. And by the way, if you do happen to stumble across one of those ready to drink cans, it is 200 milligrams of caffeine. So mind yourself, uh, don't order two, don't get three or four, 200 might do you just fine. Then again, who am I to tell you how much caffeine to have? If you want to bounce off the walls, have at it. Guys, uh, those are our two sponsors that are making this podcast with Daniel Winkler possible. It's going to be awesome. So let's get to it. So again, thank you so much, Black Rifle Coffee and Sig Sour. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, I have a lot of interesting guests in the podcast studio and over the phone for these podcasts. And, you know, sometimes they're good friends. Sometimes they're, you know, industry legends. Sometimes they're just all around good folks. Very rarely do I do I say like, hey, this is a person that embodies it all and someone who I'm just so excited to talk to because, you know, Daniel Winkler uh, of Winkler Knives, a legendary bladesmith, happens to be a very good friend and someone who I really just appreciate every single time that I get a chance to talk to him. And I think you're going to find out why this guy has done so much for the knife industry, so much for our men and women in harm's way. And I can't speak highly enough about the quality of this this man's character and his product. So, Daniel Winkler, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. It's it's great to have an opportunity to speak with you today. Oh my gosh, I am so excited we were able to nail this one down because uh, I'll tell you, with so much going on in your world and in the training world and in the knife world, uh, you know, you, you're a busy guy. And, you know, with the explosion of our friend Jack Carr's, you know, books, I mean, every like I'm seeing the R&D hawk everywhere. And people are like, what is that? What is that? Well, why is it shaped that way? And there are so many questions about that hawk. But I think part of understanding that hawk and understanding its importance and and how it was designed and and everything that goes into it is understanding you and your long history. So let's start right there. Um, how did you get into knife making? Because you've been in this business for quite some time. Yeah, I've, uh, when I first started, I was one of the young kids in the industry, and now uh, I'm one of the old men of the, <laughs> the business. Uh, so I, I actually, I started making knives when I was high school shop projects in the mid-1970s, mid to late 1970s. And back then, you could make knives in school. Uh, <laughs> not so much anymore. So that was my start. And I started because I got an interest in black powder shooting. And then I got interested in the history of the frontier and our forefathers and the equipment they used and carried and the guns and the tools and the knives and tomahawks and everything related. And it just kind of fell in as I like to build things and had a, a long background as a kid. I've spent a lot of time in the woods hunting and fishing and hiking and camping and it, it was just a natural flow into uh, researching and then learning to build equipment and uh, just moved on from there. And when you started, obviously, you've got a, an interest in these long hunters. Did you try to stay as period correct as possible or were you kind of like, I'm going to be inspired by it, but I'm going to go my own angle? Yeah, uh, no, I got into it pretty seriously and joined some organizations that uh that strive to be as historically accurate and authentic as possible. Um, the American Mountain Men, I was a member of that, and American of the uh, uh, Long Rifle Association and, and some, some other reenactment groups that I don't know if they're still around or not. But when I got into it and researching the equipment, 
the safest way to fulfill the requirements of these groups was to actually learn how to make the equipment myself. And so, you know, I hand stitched clothing out of deer hide and linen and, and made moccasins and, and, you know, the belts and forged knives and tomahawks. I even got into building flintlock, uh, firearms for a while and, and built several of those. And so it really was a great learning experience. And since I did take it seriously, uh, I wanted to be sure my equipment was correct. And in, in every case it was possible, uh, you know, I made it myself. That's incredible because I know with a lot of those reenacting groups, like they are very particular about, you know, if you are using certain clothing, like stitch lines have to be a certain way. And I know that like, if you're carrying say like a mess tin or whatever, it has to be period correct or else they won't allow you into like that metaphorical circle, right? Like that you know, you can go behind the curtain, so to speak, of like the truest of the true reenactors. And, you know, I mean, that is an endeavor. Uh, what was the hardest piece of kit to make? Uh, the firearms, for sure, overall, they were the most time consuming and, and tedious builds. Uh, you know, the knives and tomahawks took a while to learn and get good at, for sure. Uh, but yeah, for sure, the firearms were the, were the most difficult to do and do correctly. And, and I never really got into like the hand forging of the gun barrels and all the lock parts all over. Although I did some of that, uh, I didn't do it on uh, necessarily the guns that I built. But through my research, I also found that there were uh, suppliers of certain parts, you know, 300 years ago, just like there are today. And so it was still accepted practice to use like barrels from custom gun barrel makers and locks and triggers that were built by specialists. Wow. Now, I know we're jumping a, a, around a bit here. Is that how you got your introduction into being the armorer for Last of the Mohicans? Uh, actually, I, I, I wasn't the armorer for Last of the Mohicans. What I did is uh, the way that that came about is is Karen and I were doing a uh, craft show at the Biltmore Estate. And uh, the the production offices for Last of the Mohicans, which we found out was being made, were in Asheville, mm -hmm. the same city that the uh, production offices in Biltmore is at. And so when we were there for the show, prior to the show opening, we went to the production offices and told them who we were and what we did. They immediately called the props master, uh, Ron Downing, and so I got on the phone with him and he said, well, gee, I've got a meeting with director Michael Mann this evening. Can you be part of that meeting and show us what you do? And so we went to the uh, props house, which was actually in a, in a old uh, cookie warehouse and uh, met with, uh, with Ron and, uh, and Michael Mann and then some other suppliers of uh, gun parts and clothing that were being considered for the film. And they were already working with we showed him what we did, and from that point on through that uh, movie Mohicans, uh, for about six weeks, we would make knives and axes, and uh, Karen even sewed some shooting pouches and that sort of thing, and, and we would take them to the next week production meeting, and we did that for about six weeks, and at the end of the six weeks, they selected what they wanted for the principal characters and some of the secondary characters, and and then started shooting the film and uh, that that was our our way of getting into that we just happened to be already making very correct uh 
pieces that that the movie needed and and even to the point where they either gave me photographs of original blade designs and knives or uh, they actually sent me an original tomahawk the one that I ended up making for the character Magua from a uh, museum and to, to use to copy as closely as possible although it was enlarged by about 30 percent for stage presence it was copied from an original from the, the actual time period. Wow. So I'll, I'll own that mistake. I've, I shouldn't have called you the armor. So would you say that you were the, the bladesmith for the, for the movie? Well, I was, I was one of two knife makers that worked with, with the production. Randall King, who is from Asheville, uh, actually had more direct involvement with them. He also, besides the principal characters, I think that he worked for the production company in the props department and made a lot of background uh, models out of various materials and the outfitting. See, they went to great lengths to outfit the, the background characters with, with the correct looking equipment for the filming and uh, Randall did a lot of that. It ended up, I made the knife for uh, Daniel Day-Lewis character Hawkeye. I made the uh, tomahawk for the character Magua and I made the knife for the Indian brother Uncas as far as principal characters go. Randall did the knife with the carved bear head for Magua and he, he also made the knife for Chingachgook. And so he had some principal character stuff. And then we both made uh, other equipment. And, and a lot of the secondary characters actually carried the equipment that we made for the earlier production meetings as we were building to what the principal characters were carrying. So there, there, there were a lot of knives and tomahawks. They bought a lot of stuff that was uh, like reproduction tomahawks, a tomahawk that Daniel Day-Lewis used in the, in the film. It was actually a casting from an original that you could go out and buy at Buck Skinner Supply Houses. <laughs> and, uh, and, but their props department there in Asheville actually made the handles and did the, the distressing on the products. And they also made Chagotch Cook's War Club uh, there by the props department. So they, they had a very, a very complete shop where they could make a lot of the equipment that they needed themselves. You mentioned Michael Mann's name and I know uh, I just watched the movie collateral the other night uh, and I've watched heat. I don't know how many times, but uh, you've met Michael Mann. Would you say that Michael Mann is like a stickler for accuracy? I know he likes the sound of gunfire to sound actually like gunfire. Um, and would you say he's the same way then for like this historical piece that you guys did? He is the most detail oriented person in a position of authority that I have ever worked with to the point in some cases to become very annoying, not to me, <laughs> but I saw other people get really excited with his attention to detail and changing things. You know, like, like one of the production meetings we were at, we were waiting our turn to talk with him and the, and the prop staff, and he was reviewing a styrofoam cutout of the gun Killdeer that Daniel Day-Lewis carried, and he looked at it, and he held it, and this was out of blue styrofoam, and he held it to his shoulder, and it took about 45 minutes of him looking at it. He set it down and look at it, and his entourage of assistants would look with him and lean when he leaned and gasp when he gasped. And after 45 minutes, he said, okay, we need to add an eighth of an inch to the overall length of this gun. And 
you know, this is a gun that was five and a half feet long. And to be able to recognize that kind of detail, most people would think it's just nuts. But in his mind, he could tell the difference. And so that's the kind of stickler for detail Michael Mann is. But you know something, it's all worth it in the end. I mean, it's kind of like when you're going through anything, whether it's like a like a hell week for like a football camp when you're in high school or when you're prepping up for, for a tournament in some type of, you know, fighting competition or whatever, all the prep work makes the final result all the all the worthwhile and i mean you look at a movie like that which i mean i used to tell people and i still do that if i see as i'm flipping through the channels late at night if i can't sleep if that movie comes on at 1 30 in the morning i'm gonna stay up until 1 30 and watch it it's like i it's one of those movies like red dawn and first blood that you know as a kid that was like that's a the type of movie that got my blood going you know and uh you know, the soundtrack, I mean, if I hear that, it gives me like goosebumps. Like I, I want to run through the woods with my tomahawk and it's just done so well. Um, do you have a favorite part in that movie? Uh, I, I like it all. To tell you the truth, it took me about three times going to it to realize there was even a storyline because all <laughs> I could see was, oh, I was there when they filmed that. I, I know where that was at Linville Falls and and so, yeah, it's it's an exciting movie, but it took me a while because of being involved to really realize not only was it really detailed and filmed beautifully, it's a pretty good movie. And so uh, a really good movie. And, and it's proven that because you can rarely turn on the TV any week and not find it somewhere being broadcast. Mm. Uh, so I guess one of my very favorite scenes, and I happen to had the opportunity to be there during the filming of it was that first ambush scene when uh, uh, Magua turns on the the uh, the unit that he's with and they get attacked by his Indians uh, and that was filmed on the trail at Lindell Falls not very far from where I'm sitting right now where he drops his tomahawk out of his mm-hmm. his blanket and and it's a it's a very compelling exciting scene. And it, it was fun to watch because they filmed it so many times and the extras that were playing uh, the two girls, every time they got thrown off of the horses and rolled in the dirt, they went back and they had a stand of about 20 costumes that looked exactly alike and they would completely change their clothes and fix their makeup and do it again. Damn. Yeah, that, that scene, that's the one where Hawkeye says, uh, what was the line? Uh, I hope your aim is better than your judgment. That's it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know that scene. Well, um, and I'll tell you, if you're, if you're a little kid and you watch that movie, you want to be Hawkeye. And when you're like a pubescent man, uh, you want to, you want to be Hawkeye cause you save the girl, you know, you carry the guns, you run through the, like that movie just has it all. Not to mention it's a great historical piece. Um, I just think it's incredible. So fast forwarding from there, you establish your name, obviously, from your period correct pieces, and you attend all these different shows. You make your way up through the ABS, uh, American Blazement Society. Um, when did you branch out and say, I want to do like a more production line than, say, the custom stuff? Well, it, it was a, a complete accident. It didn't, it was never in our plan. Uh, what happened? We Karen and I were doing the full custom knives, one-of-a-kind pieces. We had developed a recognizable style that was well-received with the collector community. And, and even though we worked very hard to make very functional working pieces, 
And in fact, I did cutting competitions to to help me with the development of high performance tools and put that technology into each piece. Realistically speaking, nine out of 10 pieces that we made never cut anything. They went into a display cabinet or a safe into a collection. And I appreciate that. That really uh, paved the way for everything else and gave us the ability to make a living. And we were doing very well with that. Selling out at shows, we had a two-year order backlog on custom knives and which grew to uh, five and six years after a while. But, but what happened is, and this goes back to last the Mohicans, there was a, uh, a gentleman that was part of the Naval Special Warfare community, and he had been given the assignment to find a combination breaching combat hatchet that they wanted for the, the unit, and they were not happy with what they had access to through, through the market as that was available to them. And so this man had seen the movie Last of the Mohicans, uh, saw Marcus Tomahawk, and thought, well, I ought to get in touch with him. Maybe he can help with that. So he did some research and, and contacted me. And so I actually he came to my shop, and we talked about what he needed and actually hand-forged a, a full-tang uh, combat breaching hatchet, uh, not very different from some of the products we make now, and uh, and finished it up. And actually, I was making a uh, a uh, hammer pole hatchet with a full tang because I'd had one of those little Fort Migs axes and and liked the size of it and the way that it functioned. But the handle was so weak, I kept breaking my handle, and so I developed a way to do a full tang version of that same. Uh, hatchet and so I took that one basically and changed the hammer pole to a spike and put a little more swell in the bottom of the handle and a lanyard hole and and uh, went with that and he took it back to the, the squadron and they loved it and they wanted them but there was no funding for it so that project kind of died out nothing happened with it well he carried it with him throughout his career and during the first Gulf War he got out of the Navy and then 9-11 happened and so he felt that his skill level was such that he should be back into that. So he went back in, but instead of going back to the Navy, this time he went in through Army Special Operations Selection, became a Tier 1 operator with them, still carried this hatchet, and his new team liked them, and so they contacted me about making more, and I hand-forged, I think, 16 or 17 for that particular team within his squadron for them, and then they did some cross training with other other squadrons and some within the Navy back where he had originally come from. And the demand came in to want way more than I could reasonably do as a uh, you know two person operation with just me and Karen. So we thought, okay, we'll we'll look into this and we'll work on the design and development, see if we can't find somebody else to do the manufacturing. So we did that, but what we found out is having worked and developed high-performance equipment and understanding that these men were literally putting their life on the line based on the quality and the performance of their equipment, that there were certain ways we had to do this manufacturing to assure that. And the other manufacturers I talked to and contractors all had their own methods of achieving the results that they were happy with and wouldn't commit to doing it the way that I said it had to be done. And so we decided, okay, we're either going to do this right or we're not going to do it at all. 
So we rented some more space. We bought some more equipment and hired a couple of part-time people. We contracted out some water jet cutting and, uh, and just got into it and made sure we made the equipment like we knew needed to be done for their professional needs. And that was kind of how we got into it was not intentionally trying to get into a new market area. It just, we decided and realized that even as successful as we were in the, in the collector market and how well we had been received in that, that actually making equipment that now instead of uh, one out of 10 ever cutting anything, now nine out of 10 went in the field to be used. That was a very fulfilling feeling to know that what our efforts were actually making a difference in these people's lives. Hey guys, we're just going to take a quick break from our podcast just to bring you one of our sponsors. Element is that sponsor. Uh, That is L-M-N-T, the letters L-M-N-T. The website is HTTP colon forward slash forward slash drink L-M-N-T dot com forward slash fieldcraft. You're going to get a free sample pack. All you have to do is just pay shipping. And this is a drink that we've had at the Fieldcraft office now for a while, right? I've been out here for a couple of years and I've seen it come and go in terms of it gets stocked, everyone drinks it, it goes and it comes back and we just keep drinking it. Um, Element gives you electrolytes back to your system after a crazy workout. Uh, the past few weeks, I've been doing a lot of very long distance hikes over here and there's no doubt about it when you drink Element after you've sweat out a bunch of liquid, it's like a light switch. You get those uh, electrolytes back, you get your salt back, and you can just keep going and going and going. If you guys are doing the keto diet, you can drink Element because there are very few net carbs, and it's a great way to just stay hydrated. Now, it's gonna help you retain the water that you need so you don't get dehydrated. Zero sugar, zero artificial ingredients, zero coloring. Uh, A lot of professional athletes in the NBA and NFL use it, uh, as well as, uh, you know, a lot of the tier one groups, various SEAL teams, uh, Marines, sniper teams, and so forth. So please check out Element. Uh, Again, that's drinkelement.com. You'll get that sample pack, totally risk-free, and you can return the sample pack, uh, no questions asked, if you don't like it. So they have a no BS policy. We love it. I'm telling you right now, I drink it all the time. I'm constantly grabbing packets from the office, throwing them in my rucksack for those hikes. I love it. I swear by it. Guys, uh, please check out drinkelement.com forward slash fieldcraft. Back to the show. And I think that's that's very telling of your tools uh, as far as being users uh, for a while. I don't know if it's still on your site, but you had a video of you using that breacher axe or some variant of what you're talking about now, where you took it to a junkyard and you just ripped apart a car. Um, and you've got that one feature on the the pull, I'm not the pull end, the, the handle and the butt end of the handle of the, the hawk and the head is, is configured in a way where you have leverage on it and you're using it like a can opener, quite literally like a can opener. Um, that might be one of the most impressive videos of a, of a tool cutting apart a car by hand. 
you know. Um, yeah, well, that that was that was a fun video to make, and uh, and yeah, that that particular tool we developed for the Air Force PJs. They had a, a, a big hand in the development, what they needed it to do, and how they want it configured. And then I took it from there to make it reality and being able to make it. And yeah, that's that's a very effective uh, axe, and we still make that. Uh, we I think we're on the third generation. We make slight improvements to it over time. Right now, because of the military demand for those, uh, we have that limited to military and law enforcement sales only just because we can't make enough of them. They're very time consuming. And, and so we have had to limit that. I hope to open that up to a private sector here in the coming years as we improve our production capacities. But for right now, it's limited. But that video is still available. You can go to YouTube and type in Winkler Knives and you'll find it there. It's, it's still up and, and it, you're, you're right. It shows some of the performance qualities of both the knives and the axes. And, and we still show that video on a loop when we go to trade shows. It's, I'm thinking still about that number, like when you're talking about one out of 10 were actually being used and now nine out of 10 are, um, you know, with the R&D Hawk, um, I want to I want to get into the history on that because I think that's very useful. But um, I had a chance to test that out early, early on, and I was worried I was going to break the beak on it. Um, and I'll get into that story a little bit later. But your knives are meant to be used. And you know, even though your knives and axes might have like really ornate and tribal designs in the handles, they're not meant to just be a showpiece. Like everything screams function. And, uh, you know, I, I think when people see some of the prices of a, of a semi-custom knife or a semi-custom hawk, they might be reluctant. Like, oh, if I damage this, oh, use it, right? Use it. You're not going to damage it. Like you spent that much. It's going to protect you. It's going to, uh, save your life if need be. Um, you don't have to worry. It's coming from a reputable maker. Um, so I want to get into that, that talk about the R and D Hawk, which a lot of our listeners follow Jack Carr. Um, and they know the, the crossed Hawks from the terminal list series and, and whatnot. But, you know, I was just talking on the phone with the, the R in the R and D cause I know R and D, uh, was was named after both of you. Uh, I was just on the phone with with Rafael Kayanin, one of my my SIA constructors, who's actually a Tuhan in the system. He uh, he he and I just we talk all the time about different things, and you know I was like, oh by the way, I'm going to be podcasting, you know Dan Winkler, and and he's like, oh yeah, well number one, tell him I said hello, and then you know we we talked about a few other things, but how did that whole relationship happen? I mean, obviously you guys collaborated on this design, which at the time I'm sure people were reluctant to admit like, okay, it's got some history. It's got some purpose. Um, I know he said before that when it first came out, people were doubting why it was designed that way and, and if it would even be successful, but look at it now. How did you guys come to this design and, and what was the the history behind you guys meeting and, and following through with this product? Yeah, well, that, that is an interesting story because at the time, uh, Raphael and, and his group were working with a tier one group uh, on on training and uh, and doing what they do because they're very good at it. At the same time that I was working with the same group on some equipment, and uh, they actually said, "Hey, the two of you need to get together." Mm-hmm. And so they actually introduced us and in talking with Raphael and 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 understanding his his skill level and what he did and his knowledge of the equipment and the designs that work well for their style of 
of, of training, uh, we came up with this uh, R&D Hawk design. And we did it both with the front spike and, and without the front spike and uh, in, in two different sizes, which we still offer. We did a third size, a subcompact for a while, but it just wasn't really uh, as functional as what we wanted, so we dropped that. But uh, the compact and the full size are still our, our number one sellers in the Hawks. And, uh, and the design is, uh, is all related to the style of use that they uh, that Sayoc uses and Raphael as uh, their chief tomahawk instructor and so uh, we worked on it over a period of time while we were both working with this this special unit and uh, and then opened it up and and opened it to the public and it's been very successful it's highly tested in the field it is a combat design uh, I know that there are people that use it for field craft and, and other uses and some breaching, but the overall design of it, and, and you've held it and you've looked at it, you know, it's not really designed for anything but a blade forward handhold. And it's got two handholds on it, one right under the head for close quarter work, and then one at the bottom of the handle for more velocity and more of a traditional tomahawk swing. But then you can't really hold it and wield it very well with a spike forward like you can so many of our other designs. And that's because that's not what that spike is designed for. It's, it's designed for more maneuvering than it is as a striking part. And the uh, the front spike, it just uh, it has its use in in creating a more traumatic injury, so you have the advantage over your opponent. And and so it's it's very functional, but it's very uh, direct in what its function is. And and without giving away all the all the information that shouldn't be out there to the public. Uh, I'll say a few things about it in my experience and, and feel free to jump in. So, you know, I'm, I'm a SIOC instructor. I'm an associate level instructor in SIOC and I have an R and D Hawk. Um, and early on when Tuan Raf was like, yeah, I want you to, to try this in the woods. We actually filmed a whole bunch of testing where I was using the front spike version. And he's like, tell me what you think. And I was like, well, Okay, number one, like if you have a round of wood and you put that front spike in, when you pick up both, it actually helps to split the wood because it keeps it in place. It's like, that's cool. I was so worried about breaking that front spike, but I never bent it or anything like that. And then I found that that angle on that inside angle of that front spike edge, when you cut something small, it actually pulled the uh, sapling or whatever, which you're not supposed to cut saplings with one shot with a tomahawk that are hanging, you know, I was able to do that with that. I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, and when we started talking about the design and he started telling me like the history of it, he's like, listen, you know, this is a traditional Filipino, uh, design, right? It comes from his roots. Uh, you know, the Bontak tribe, when people say, oh, it's from the boonies. Well, the Bontak is what the actual term is. It's not boonies. It's Bontak region, of the Philippines. So, you look at the axes that came out of there that were for warfare and they all had that front spike and it wasn't for cutting coconuts, right? I mean, you look at the, what that front spike did and how it prevented glancing. That's the reason for the front spike. Um, and then as far as the grips, if you hold that Sioc R and D Hawk up to a SIG 226, the grip angle is identical directly under the head. And then you go to that bottom grip, like you're talking about, and it's very similar to a barong you know, a very traditional Filipino weapon that was used on uh, pirate ships. Like when pirates would board, they would carry a barong because it was short, fast, and it was meant for uh, for swinging without 
losing the retention on that, that grip. So if you look at a traditional barong with that hook, you know, that's where that, that hook comes from. So this ax, when it came out, it just spoke to me. I was like, damn, that's, those are my people. I'm half Filipino, you know? And the more and more I learn about it and the more I use it, because I'll still break it out every once in a while for training, um, the more I appreciate the design. Uh, is there anything else that I missed on, on that kind of brief history of it? No, no, you're very good. But uh, another another interesting fact on that hawk is is later on I found out some of the, the uh, professionals that were carrying them would use it for crowd control uh, <laughs> just because of the appearance of it. And it was like you know we we know what the rules of engagement are with a firearm, but now this is a bad looking weapon. I don't know what they can do and can't do with that. Let's just back off. And so it uh, it, it has other uses that that might not have been intended in the beginning right that that kind of throws the whole concept of uh blades should be felt and not seen out the window but if you can avoid fighting through that type of intimidation then that's the highest art right there right like if you can avoid conflict by projecting a little bit of violence eh, guess what i think you're going to go home that night and hopefully no one will, will mess with you in the future um so you guys have designed multiple blades. There was not only that one, but there was the Bontak blade, his his larger fixed blade, the Madumi, which that one I don't believe you have in your current catalog, but I still have one. I love it. Um, and you, you've been very good with with trusting the designs of of these industry pros. Um, you, I think at one point you said that the R and D hawk is one of the harder hawks to make. Is that because of that front spike? Uh, well, the front spike and all the contours in the handle are both. That, that's the most difficult model that we produce. The front spike especially because it's, that, that's a very uh, highly skilled grind to do, and, and it takes a long time to get one of our, our employees, our grinders, to be able to, to do those. And, and, you know, at Winkler Knives, we have about a 30,000 square foot manufacturing facility. I've got about 22 or 25 employees, but each one specializes in a certain area. And it, it takes a good year to a year and a half to train a blade grinder to get that hawk right. And we lose a lot in the training process. And Jack Carr, uh, has gone a long way in making that a very popular design. I think right now we are backlogged on the R&D front spike Hawk 830 some pieces. So that's why the delivery, anybody that's waiting on one, just be patient because I think we've got a 10 to 12 month delivery time on that particular model right now just because of the two things. One, the popularity of it and two, the difficulty in making it. And uh, we have machines that do part of it, but a lot of it is still, it's a hand-eye coordination with the standing in front of a two by 72 inch grinder to get it shaped right and everything right with it. So it, it's, it's a very time consuming product to make, but it shows in the final product and what it's capable of. You know, you answered one of the uh, reader questions or listener questions that I was going to ask you later on. So over 800 pieces are currently backlogged. Um, but man, that, that, that says something about, you know, the folks who are interested in your, your stuff and how long do you think that'll take to fulfill? <laughs> yeah. Well, I would like to say right now we're projecting 10 to 12 months Okay. on anybody that orders one today. 
Wow. And I hope we can fulfill that. And we are getting better at it because we're doing so many of them. And we have specialists that that's just what they do most all the time that they're here is work on that particular model. So it's getting better. And we're getting better at consistency in the manufacturing, but it's still, you got to realize everything we do at Winkler Knives, there's still a great deal of handwork involved in them. It's the way that I know how to make things. And that's what I set up in production. So it's just, everybody's got to be patient. I think even on our regular knives and hatchets, we're still at a uh, 16 to 20 week delivery schedule. Uh, and even though they may be a little easier to make, we still have a lot of demand for them. And so we're trying to, to fulfill as best we can. And, and uh, the, you know, we do give priority uh, scheduling to military orders and for law enforcement because those guys truly may rely on what we're producing. And, and it's a good problem to have, but it's still an issue that we constantly work on every day. Yeah. I like the fact that you are still giving priority to those guys because it would be very easy to exploit the success of like all the Jack Carr influence, right? All the James Reese influence and say, look, we're just going to go after the money, right? Like go after all these private citizens that want to buy these R and D Hawks. And, and I'll tell you from the SIOC perspective, you know, we, we do the same thing. Like we, could easily, easily say, Hey, you want to learn how to use the Hawk in, in uh, that scene in the terminal list. But we, we appreciate all the exposure that, you know, Jack Carr has brought to the R and D design. Um, you know, but we would never try to exploit it just for the sake of that. Like we're very protective of, of our art and what we do. And I mean, we are a tribe. Um, so when people say, well, how come you guys don't just train everyone? How come you don't have schools everywhere? It's because we don't want to grow too big. And it says the same thing about you. Like if you don't want to, you don't, and you never want to ostracize your base and you've always been good to the military and law enforcement instead of just going after the dollar. Um, but I want to talk about Jack Carr now, cause that's, I want to talk about that. And then I know your, your time's limited. So I want to talk about Jack Carr and then I want to get to some questions from the, the listeners and then, you know, we can, we can wrap it up there. Um, how did you find out that there's this author, former seal, he's going to feature one of your Hawks. And did you ever think it was going to blow up to this proportion? Well, you know, early on, I, I met Jack Carr when he was still active duty in Coronado. I, I met him before that. Actually, the first time I met him was at an NRA convention in Charlotte. And then uh, we stayed in touch. And I went to uh, to visit him in Coronado when he was still active duty. And he actually took me through the Bud training facility. And so we developed personal friendship through that. And then we would see each other on occasion at different events that, that we were, would both go to. And then when he uh, announced his retirement, he wanted some special presentation gifts for his kids. Uh, and I worked with him on that with the R&D Hawk because that's one of the pieces of equipment he used when he was active. And so naturally, as he started writing and incorporating some of his personal experiences into his writings, the R&D Hawk came into play as a, as a part of his, of his storyline. And so once he started writing and, and I read one of the advanced copies of the terminal list, the first book that he came out with, I thought, well, he's going to do well. This is an outstanding action adventure book with enough historical accuracy to keep it real and not fantasy. And 
realizing that, I thought, you know, that that there's going to be people that are going to feel the same way, and R&D Hawks are going to get popular. And, uh, yeah, they really did. And then when Terminal List came out on on, uh, Prime Video, it just really, the phone would ring, and if we got 10 calls, eight of them were asking about the R&D Hawk. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah, I know... uh... You know, we uh, we have a very close relationship with Jack Carr, and now that I I don't want to I don't want to be superstitious, but I would say the same way that Rambo made the hollow handled knife famous, and the same way that the Hunted, uh, which is also a, a two on Ralph uh, project, right? He was one of the fight coordinators for that, made the tracker knife famous. I'm going to say that this R and D Hawk is going to go through the roof because of James Reese. Um, I don't, I see it on the same level. Well, if it gets any more popular, (laughs) uh, people are just going to have to wait longer. (laughs) It's hard. And you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I I keep seeing on uh, the internet. There's, there's a lot of folks out there trying to do that. They're trying Mm -hmm. to knock it off. They're trying to make, versions of it or copies of it and and unfortunately we get forgeries out of china on our other models regularly i mean even to the point where they'll have our touch mark on it and even copies of our of our inspection card with our chief inspector's initials on it wow and it coming out of china and selling for 65 dollars and so the general public that follows us generally police that very well but the, the thing with the R&D Hawk is it's trying to happen with that one. But quite frankly, it is such a difficult product to make. If there's somebody out there that can do it better than we do, <laughs> you know, have at it because <laughs> it is not an easy product to grind. It, it's a very, it's a, it's a very detailed and specific type of grind that is so far out of the norm for any, any knife or tomahawk or axe I've ever had a part of or seen others make it's it's, it's quite unique I, I think that's a perfect segue then into some of the reader listener questions because there's one that is right there right hand in hand so this comes from a guy named big sky 2111 he says how does he f- deal with people who blatantly rip off his designs yeah well the way you deal with it it is different you know quite frankly i don't take any of that personally you know when we were in the custom knife industry and and we were the ones karen and i that really popularized this rustic early american american indian look in what we did because that's what we liked and what we wanted to do and it took a while to get accepted and there's quite a few people out there now that follow in that same direction some do copies of what they've seen in pictures and some try to branch out and do their own versions of it either way it's okay you know my influence on knife design and and making comes has come over many years from a lot of different areas we all are influenced in what we see and we touch and we feel every day and knives have been around for thousands of years so it's hard to do something brand new that doesn't have some influence from somebody else so personally i don't take it personally but no when actual forgeries like come out of china and not picking on china it just happens to be where they're coming from uh we actually registered our trademark in china so it would be somewhat protected but the reality of it is how much can you afford to enforce that 
on the other side of the world in a country that you probably can't even go to. So, so we just have to accept it. And we realize that, that when we know of things like that, that happen, we make it public to our customer base because we don't want them being fooled by a forgery. And then they kind of take it from there. But then all these others where I've been seeing these, these different renditions of the R and D hawk coming out from Right now, some of them are coming out of Ukraine, some are out of the mm-hmm. U.S. It, it, they're, they're coming from a lot of places. You know, it's just it's just the way the world is. You you do something that is recognized and successful, and others want to jump on that bandwagon and see if they can't get a piece of that pie. And it's not the way that I do things, and I don't particularly care for it. But I'm also realistic, and I know that you know, have, having been in the knife industry for as long as I have. You know, uh, in in the big knife organizations, the ABS, the Knife Makers Guild, very few of the members there, regardless of their skill level, are actual knife designers. There's a lot more carpet copy artists that may be very good than there are knife designers, and that's just the nature of the business. Wow, that is a classy response because I know that there are some other folks out there that would say, I'm going to go to that guy's door at 3.30 in the morning. and you know, But I mean, it, you, you rise above it um, and that there's something to be said about that. And the fact that there are folks out there that won't attribute a design to you says something about their character and maybe the idea that they want to steal your, your, your credibility and they want to steal from you without saying, hey, this is my inspiration. So hats off to you. Now, this next question kind of ties back to something that you said earlier. This one comes from a Instagram guy named do you say, or do you, you, I'm sorry, I can't even talk today. Do you see 22, Duke 22? If he has any hawks with defects to sell me, question mark. (laughs) So you don't get in the habit of selling uh, defects, right? Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, Anything that we we go through on our manufacturing process, we go through spot inspection steps at every stage, but we have designated inspection specifically in three different areas of production on every single piece that we do. And anything that, that isn't up to standard that we can't fix, we destroy. I don't sell seconds. Uh, we destroy seconds. We we take them and we put them in a bin and I cut them into pieces and they go into steel recycling. So no, we don't have any seconds. Just that's <laughs> okay. not what we do. And we any any blades that are off that that somebody could find at the recycling center, we cut those up too because we don't want somebody taking one of our blades and making a forgery and not doing it right and then coming back to us. So so you. Know, uh, I, I tell you, listener, I'm sorry, but uh, no, that's 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 not how this works. Now, on occasion, we'll have a blade that comes through that, for example, uh, training a new grinder, he got the tip a little thick, and when he sharpened it, it changed the profile of the blade and no longer matches the picture that people are ordering from. Well, I may take that piece and hold on to it, and, and when some guy like that uh, just got off deployment, comes by and visits and, and is really, you know, been serving his country. I, I might give it to him as a gift and tell him, you know, this is a little off spec, but it's still a good functional knife. 
So I have some of those, but I don't sell. Okay. Uh, last two questions. And I know you got, I got, I know you got to leave. Um, was Magua, I'm sorry, this comes from globe underscore trotter underscore 21 globe trotter 21 was Magua really a bad guy or just misrepresented. <laughs> he was the nicest person I dealt with in that whole filming production. <laughs> Wes Studi is just an absolute wonderful person. And, uh, and he plays his part so well, but that's the sign of a real actor. Daniel Bay Lewis was very nice, but he's very quiet. He's a method actor and he got so into his character, even between film sets, he would be out in the woods. He would be thinking about what he's going to do and moving. And there was very little interaction between us. Uh, Russell means the Chingachgook to, uh, I would not want to speak ill of the dead, but he could be difficult. Okay. Uh, uh, Uncas, uh, Eric Schwing was, was very nice and very pleasant. And, but I had very little interaction with him, but, uh, Margot at West Studi, we, we had many conversations. He was always helpful. He was always cooperative and, and I would consider him the nicest person I dealt with. And now I've got to watch the movie with a totally different perspective. <laughs> so last question, yep. this one comes from D sig seven, 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 and I can answer part of this and I'm sure you'll, you'll chime in with a little bit. Uh, when will your collaboration with him be available? So you guys are probably talking about the knife that I, I was walking around with the 3d sample of at blade show last year. Um, you're talking about the knife that I'm going to refer to as the GP, the general purpose. Uh, it's a, it's a knife that honors my late mentor, uh, Marty. It's a knife that is designed off of something that he carried. And, uh, that one, well, it, it'll be soon and soon's a relative term. I mean, keep in mind 800 backordered R and D's. Um, but that knife will be, will be out soon. And I'm really excited to, to work with Daniel on that one. Uh, yeah, I'm excited too. And, and as I talked to you, because of the the demand for our products, we've put most all of our custom manufacturing on hold. But having talked with you about this project for quite a long time and the relationship that we have, we we are making an exception in your case to go ahead and and plug it into our our product line as soon as everybody is ready to move forward with this. So mm -hmm. you know. Do you get special treatment? Well, yeah, you do. So, uh, <laughs> Thank you. So it'll it, it'll be soon. I figure probably we're still looking at sometime in 2023. Mm -hmm. And uh, but but yeah, it's on the horizon, and and we're really excited about working on this project. Yeah, and we're we're going to wrap up this podcast shortly, but stay on afterwards. And I just want to give you a couple updates on that, which we won't tell the listeners just yet. So, Daniel, is there anything else that uh that we should know about, or is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, we're coming up on I, that, I, that time. I do. Hmm. We're, we're, we are getting into another uh, direction. It's not a direction, but what we're doing right now, and hopefully we'll be ready to go forward with it in about two to three weeks. We are opening Winkler Knives Actual, which is going to be a retail store and museum related around Winkler Knives. And it'll have, in the museum area, it will have the things from the hand-stitched buckskin clothing that I wore when we first started this. It'll show a large range of the hand-forged, one-of-a-kind pieces Karen and I have made. It'll go into custom manufacturing, retired pieces, a whole museum area showing the movie pieces that we've made. 
And then it's also going to be a store for our knives and axes and tools, plus some related gear, which I want to talk to you about sometime because mm-hmm. I want to put some survival equipment in <laughs> as available related to the knives. So it'll be a destination just off Highway 105 here in Boone. And I hope people will come and visit us. And like I say, we're looking to open hopefully by the middle of October. Man, why do you have to do that to me? Right right as we're about to get off this podcast. I mean, the good thing is I'm going to be moving to North Carolina at the end of uh, October, early November. So you can be guaranteed I will be stopping by and I'll I'll take a whole bunch of content and and share it with our listeners because that sounds like it's going to make the history junkie in me so excited. Awesome. It's gonna. It's a beautiful facility. We've remodeled the whole thing, and and it's coming along so well. I think people will be really happy to to make that part of their visit when they visit the North Carolina mountains. Wow. Well, Daniel, for everything that you do for this country, for the knife industry, for you know the Sioc tribe, for everything that you've done for me over the years, thank you so much, and obviously for this podcast. And uh, I just really appreciate having you on. Well, sure thing. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure talking with you and uh, look forward to it some other time. And whenever I get the chance to see you, we'll look forward to it. Sounds good. All right, guys. Well, that's the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.